I'm ready to record right now. Okay, good. I'm and I'm also ready and we're running and we're pressing record and no one owns me. Wait, don't wait, don't don't press record yet. What? Paul, (laughs) this is your choice, so you introduce this time, please. Well, let's welcome everybody to the podcast. Spine Spine crackers. I want Paul to do it. All right. This is a spine crack cracker. <laughs> spine crackers podcast with Paul, Matt, and Gabe. And uh, like the the great Charles Dickens once said, "Crack that spine, have a good time." <laughs> oh. that's, a, that's a that's a quote from one of his books. If you haven't he, thought it, it's true. Is that's that right? Or are you playing a trick? No, that's real. You can read all of his books, and you'll understand. Oh, uh, <laughs> that was the, Alexis. The joy. It's not a real quote. It's not a real quote. Come on, but it's it's funny to me. So Paul likes uh, to snap open his cans and then also previously before we were recording, f- flaunt his his cash money yeah. at the screen. Only fifty. My notes, dude. Yeah. Only fifty. and only three of them. Still, <laughs> it's more than I have. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have that much money. I have zero. Um, <laughs> if you get paid in cash, it means that you probably don't have the best job. Let's just leave it at that, right? Uh, right? Not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I'm doing like waiting tables that I do as a like in a lot of other jobs that I've done. Yeah. That's okay. It yeah. just depends on what your hustle is. Basically, long story short. Get up, grind, get this bread. Yeah. Period, baby. Fucking yeah, work. Yeah, work sixty hours a week. Put your head down, carry on. Work sixty hours, get paid cash. I think mm-hmm. that, I think that's also Dickens. Yeah, yeah. Ri- rise and grind is Dickens. Oliver uh, Twist definitely rose and ground. He yes. did. I mean, a lot of these characters can be said to have risen and ground, and gotten theirs. Sort of uh, like the character of F. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. He rose in ground. He wrote a book for because uh, he wanted uh, to have sex, and it worked. And they got married and had a mutually destructive alcoholic death spiral of a relationship, but yeah. he can't be said to have not gotten what he wanted. Sad. <laughs> oh, no. Sad. Oh, that's right. Uh, we never said that we were uh, talking about Moon Palace today. I don't think. We didn't. We are talking about Moon Palace. We haven't even really started the podcast yet. <laughs> we did. We are. We are starting it. We, we did start it officially. We we've been doing it. We should say. We should also say we're recording this currently. There's there's no president of the United States. It's yeah. it's a lawless, uh, uh, wild land out there. Yeah, I think legally you're. It's just. You know, you just do whatever. Legally, the president is is the physical constitution right now. <laughs> yes, it's Jan, it's Jan, it's Jan Hancock and uh, George Washington. And if you can, whoever has it is the reigning in the interim, the reigning president. It's ba- it's like the conch from fucking from fucking uh, Lord of the Flies. Flies. Yeah, that's exactly right. You talk through, you roll it up as a tube. And you yell, you yell at people, and they have to do what you tell them. 
Well, so we're we're doing purge. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, we uh this the book this week was my pick. It was Moon Palace by Paul Auster, and I picked it because Paul Auster has the same first name as me. That was basically (laughs) it. Um, (laughs) No, I picked it because I I had read two books prior. I I read the the New York trilogy, which Gabe you have also read, and you liked it a lot. I did like. I also read. I read the Book of Illusions by Paul Auster, which I also liked a lot. And I was, I haven't read a book of his in like maybe five years. Um, so I was excited to read another one. And Moon Palace was written in 1989, I think. I think it was one of his earlier novels, Paul Auster. And Paul <laughs> Auster is like a, uh, a New York-based author. He's very New York. Yes, I actually I actually really like him as a person. I, I listen to a lot of interviews, and I have over the years. And I I always thought he was just like a cool dude. Um, but Gabe, do you want to give the synopsis? Because I don't want to do that. Uh, yeah, I could. I can. I can give it a shot. Um, so basically, it's it's a it's a weird structure because a lot of it is just stories of a a huge chunk of the book uh, is stories of past things that have happened to the characters. Um, Like, so there's a, there's a, um, it's told by by the main character who's named is Marco Stanley Fogg. uh, MS. MS. It was by MS. um, And uh, it's sort of a, a sort of life and times um work uh it takes place in the sort of like what like late 60s 70s yeah but like i i, for, I don't yeah, know like, what the span of yeah. time is really yeah i don't know what the the exact span is but it's like vaguely woodstock vietnam uh 68 to 72 but like i think but like or something like that or no it's it starts with the moon landing essentially yeah so what's that's 68 Man, I'm 69? stupid. I don't hey, it's know. not a history podcast, people. That's true. 31? I think it's 1931. <laughs> uh, 1969, July 20th. Nice. <laughs> I said that. I said that. Nice, dude. You got so anyway, it. Nice. So, the, so the book follows uh, Fog. We get a little bit of background with his family. Um, he never knew his father, uh, and his mother dies relatively young. She's hit by a bus. He then um, is taken in with, by his uncle, Victor, who's a sort of um, kind of vagabondish musician. He teaches the clarinets, is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, lives with him for a while. He then goes off to college at Columbia um, in New York City, uh, gets an apartment. Victor dies and um, Marco starts to sort of slowly spiral into this bizarre kind of existence where he's reading all of the books that Victor left him and slowly donating them or selling them and then only living off of that money and and sort of living this uh, uh, monkish existence in his apartment and effectively at one point uh, gives himself up to like inevitable death and starvation uh, yeah. which he you which is sort of a theme he does that a couple times it seems <laughs> yeah. 
he then has a sort of chance encounter um, in with uh, a, a group of young people who feed him and he gets a sort of second lease on life um, briefly, but ultimately he's still evicted from his apartment. He then goes and lives in Central Park for a time as a sort of, you know, as a homeless person. Um, and uh, eating, out of, eating out of trash bags or trash cans as receptacles. Um, yes. Ultimately, he he uh, links back up with um, the girl that he met, and her name's Kitty, Kitty Wu. Yeah, and he gets a job, sort of, sort of, sort of by chance, um, as basically the not caretaker but sort of paid companion of this eccentric, rich old guy who's maybe blind, um, paralyzed in a wheelchair. And this very sort of eccentric, enigmatic, rich old guy. And he uh, ultimately, so it starts out, he sort of reads him the news, reads him books, whatever he wants to hear. But ultimately he starts to sort of dictate this guy's biography as he says, speaks it to him. Um, and I, I won't, I won't go into all the details of that. Now we can come back to it. I, I don't think it's, you know, but it's, it's a very wide ranging, bizarre life story that this guy had, which also includes a number of episodes of living in a similarly sort of destitute homeless state to what Marco had just done in the park. Um, and so we can, we can come back to the details of that later. Ultimately, um, uh, the old guy whose name is Thomas Effing. Right, which is a, yeah, well, yeah whatever. But yeah, go ahead. It's a nom de plume or something, right? It's a self-anointed name. Right, right. It's not his real name. Um, yeah, it's a je m'appelle. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then um, Effing ultimately dies. Um sort of sort of by his own choice by his own design um and again we can talk about that uh then marco um gets a bunch of inherits he leaves marco a, a large sum of money which him and kitty then live off of for a time he um you know is just sort of reading and writing and blah 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 blah, blah finishing school and then um all right, let me make sure if I'm not missing anything like big in between there. Essentially, I don't think so. Yeah, essentially, no, it sounds good. I mean, I think essentially that after right. Kitty Kitty gets pregnant, they have a, a big sort of falling out over it. They end their relationship, and um, Marco goes on a sort of cross country trip and winds up at the Pacific Ocean, sort of contemplating where to take the rest of his life. Right. And are we, are we, well, are I think, we, are I we think over that, uh, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, like, I thought that if I were, if I were to summarize it, I would probably bring it into three different sections. And the last section would be, uh, MS's dad. It would be like, you know, the, the oh, yeah, initial story of, of MS, then effing. And then the last section I would probably give to MS's dad. I forget his name, Sal. Well, my question was going to be, did we want to mention that or save it? Is, are we trying to be coy about any of this stuff? Or are we just sort of I, giving... I, I, I wasn't. No. I honestly just forgot that part a little bit. Yeah, um, Solomon, Solomon Barber. Solomon Barber. Yeah, yeah. Barber. Who was Epping's yeah, son, uh, who also turns out to be 
MS's dad. Yes. So, he, but I, I mean, I, I think I would, I would basically summarize fat. it as like MS's like weird journey of being homeless and becoming skinny and being like a very depressed <laughs> individual. And, and then he, then he meets effing and that's probably like the two thirds of the book. And the last three quarters would be the story of Barber and more in depth about the story of MS and, and Kitty. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of where it ends. You know what I, I thought of while reading this was um, uh, the it was a cloud atlas. Just for I, I the read it. Just for the like what felt like a kind of nesting doll structure, uh, that has that where the nests are different time periods. Hmm. So like you start in the far future, you sink back into the farthest reaches of the past, and you resurface into the present, or the far future in terms of cloud atlas, but. The, what I was thinking of most of all was when George Lucas said, "It's like poetry; it rhymes." Oh my god! That, I, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not even kidding. I was that's actually a, thinking about that a lot. That's real. Like, yeah, yeah it's totally real. Yeah, and that's actually the, like a. That's a really similar vibe that uh, Paul Oster does in most of his novels. <laughs> explain, please explain like a little bit more. I don't get it. I, I'm just saying that, like, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, like, a story will happen, and then another character will come into place, and they'll have, like, a similar story, and you'll be like, how does that relate to this last story? And then another story will come in, and it'll be like, oh, that relates to this and this. And it's like, there's all these interconnections happening. So and it's kind of like, happened. is it like, um, what is it, 300? When Leonidas says <laughs> the things we do today will echo in eternity. Yes. No. Exactly like that. And so, but, but I mean, I get, I take your point, Paul, there are a lot of sort of resonances and repeated themes and even like periods and, and periods and events that occur across all three. Essentially what we, what we wind up talking about is three generations of the same family, right? So Marco, and then his yeah. father turns out to be Solomon Barber, who was a college professor who um, was disgraced when he had sex with the woman who turns out to be um, Marco's mother, and um, then sort of goes around the country teaching for brief periods at different colleges, and then ultimately uh, um, is tracked down by Marco once Thomas Effing dies, because Thomas Effing was Solomon Barber's father. And so we, it's, it's essentially a sort of three generational story about these, these three men. But Paul, my question that's, that's is, that's also not, Oh, go ahead. Well, my, well, I just want to ask you, were you talking more about Paul Oster? Cause both of you have read, I, this is my first Paul Oster book. I've not read anything else by him. Were you suggesting that like, this is something he does in all the other books kind of that you've read as well? Yes, he definitely does this. He, it's like uh like in in the new york trilogy there's actually a character named paul oster in the new york trilogy and i think he he likes to play with uh with any identity of any character he he likes to divulge in some sort of area of like how how true is this what like what if you're reading this like how much of it is true, how much of it is like just an exploration of any 
character or any like characterization. I don't know. Like I can't really explain myself. Is he being meta basically? Like, is that like him? Yes. Yes. There's a lot of meta aspects to Paul Oster's writing where it's like these characters are like just ciphers interchangeably put into even different time periods where like similar things happen. And like, maybe that's part of his statement about writing or something. I don't know. Possibly. It's been, it's been a long time since I read the New York trilogy. I read it twice, but there are these sort of like overlapping themes that he likes to pronounce on every single one of his characters that are just like, it it, it leads to a, a, a a status of just being confused and just being like, how much of this is true? How much of this is just like, an overabundance of a certain theme. There are definitely questions um, of, of reliability at play here, specifically in the effing, in the Thomas effing section where yeah. uh, he's dictating his, his life. And, you know, even, even from the details about him being, being blind, uh, Marco never is even really, he's never sure exactly how true anything that effing is telling him is or even how true any aspect of Effing's personality or or even like physical state really is. <laughs> right. Um, uh, other yeah. than he's paralyzed. Well, like this felt very much, I thought like overall book about writing. I don't, how old, again, this is a question I'll have often, but like how old is Paul Oster at this point? Does anyone 70s, have an idea? Maybe, maybe late seventies. Or how old was he in 1989, rather? Oh, probably like late 30s, early 40s, I'm guessing. Is that or just... like maybe mid-30s? I mean, we could clear this up, but... Um, yeah, let's Again, it, 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 it feels like... A, a, and it feels very much like one of those works that I, I, I feel like maybe it's like uh, the second or third book in a person's sort of writing career where it's them tackling... tackling the difficulty of writing itself and start writing about writing essentially. I, I feel like that happens often. Um, especially well, he, because he does that hmm. he does that throughout his career though. Like I think a lot of his writing process, like a lot of his novels kind of go into the mind of a writer. Um so I, I don't think he really I think that the the New York trilogy and the Book of Illusions, which is the two books I've read. I did like more than this, so I feel like he did evolve in certain ways, but I don't think he actually- Your trilogy was before this. Was it really? Yeah, 87. Ooh. Wow, I'm a fucking, I'm a fucking noob. Oh my God. Interesting. I always took him to be a, more of like a, a I don't know, Graham Greene or, or a mystery writer type of guy. This mm. is why, this was my notion of him until just now That's when funny. I read this book. Uh, because he would get tra- trotted out with, you know, the 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 litany of of super New York based writers at the time. I remember I was aware and interested in in possibly reading something of his in college, where at the same time as like Jonathan Latham and uh, uh fuck the why can't I remember his name? Not Michael Chabon, but some you know th- I, like these people were popping off, and he was kind of like in the same breath of these people. Right. He was 42 when he wrote this book. Yep. 42. 
and he didn't from what i understand from listening to, to some interviews he he like wrote a lot when in his 20s but didn't get published until his early 30s he kind of he wrote a lot of manuscripts that he just like gave up on and i don't know when his first book was published but he was in his 30s so this is a relatively early on novel of his Kind but of. not not nowhere near he's been writing he's been trying to break in for a while yeah i guess i just see i see i saw a lot of like layers to this I, the the nesting technique kind of lost me a bit occasionally but i think there was an early statement when he's kind of like homeless and rambling and, and shambolic and like walking through central park and probably feverish at that point or whatever where I I don't know what to make of of the fact that he basically lived inside of a, a an inherited apartment, and all the furniture was made out of books stacked in different ways, <laughs> which I thought was actually really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. So so the so Victor, his uncle who dies, or he's not dead at this point, but he he is going on a tour with his new jazz band, and he can't, he can't bring his his collection of books, and he leaves them to Marco. And they arrive at his apartment one day in these these you know dozens and dozens of of boxes, and Marco effectively uses them to create the <laughs> furniture for the apartment. And after you know, and after Victor is sort of dies, and as Marco's going through these books, um, and has sort of decided to uh, uh, you know give up on life essentially. The furniture, he talks about how the furniture is going away. It's literally like wasting away in front of him as he's reading through these books and selling them. But what is he going to, is he going to school for fucking literature as well? Like what, what is he going to Columbia for? And why does he make the choice to retreat into the apartment and just live there and not engage with anybody? I, I think I didn't like, uh, Victor dies. I didn't like this Victor guy. Victor died. I don't like Mark. I liked him. I liked Marco. I, no. I, I didn't like him as like fundamentally I didn't like him, but I, I was really connected with him as a human. Like it wasn't in a good way. I was every every aspect of his character, I was like, I don't like anything you're doing. I think you're you're full of ghosts and you're full of spooks and you're weak <laughs> and you're a fucking hufflepuff. But <laughs> whoa, save I, that for later. Spoilers, dude. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna save it for later, but I have to admit that even though I didn't like him, I connected with him on so many levels. I thought that like he was really relatable to me, especially being in his early twenties. Like I think the book ends and he's like twenty four years old. Yep, he's in his mid twenties. Like, that's true. That's something to keep in mind. Is he's super young? Yeah it it feels like like when it got to the end and he was, I realized he was only twenty four. I thought I felt like he should have been older because the book felt kind of long. And I, I thought that a lot of, a lot more time had passed, but he's only 24. Can I read a, and, a passage that I felt called out by as a 19-year-old? Please. Yes. With all the fervor and idealism of a young man who had thought too much and read too many books, I decided that the thing I should do was nothing. My action would consist of a militant refusal to take any action at all. This was nihilism raised to the level of an aesthetic proposition. <laughs> <laughs> I would turn my life into a work of art, sacrificing myself to such exquisite paradoxes that every breath I took would teach me how to savor my own doom. 
I literally, Matt, I literally wrote that line down in my notes as one to read. Yeah. I mean, God fucking yeah. damn it. I was like, fuck. Okay. That that's I, th- yeah. I I highlighted that one as well. That was the, <laughs> that was the that was the beginning of his choice to obviously just like like he calculates his finances and he's like, I can live on this amount of money for this long, but I'm not I'm gonna choose not to work. I'm gonna keep going to school and just fast and like eat one meal a day and like do nothing. And then right. that evolves that divulges into like, all right, once I run out of money, I'm just gonna eat out of trash bins. And I actually like my favorite chapter was probably the first chapter. It was a long chapter. There's a couple of really long chapters that um i think they give like the most information and then there's like little sub chapters afterwards like they do that in the first chapter with ms and then like with effing and then with uh barber too but i don't know like the first chapter was what i like about paul oster the most is that like he has this amazing ability to get into the mind of someone who's like absolutely insane and like wants to be homeless and like is just living at at this really base level of living and that happens in the new york trilogy too and that's like almost what i love most about his writing i don't know how he does it but the little details in that chapter were so like i just loved him i lo- i love the little details of like oh i I realized that this bush was safe to be in at night. And I realized that like, if I added these trash bins, people would look at me. But after a while, I like, I learned to just shake off their looks. Um, Can I read it? I don't know. I thought, I thought it was great. I think um, this is a, this is a passage that I think touches on a few of these things uh, in terms of being in this, this, this guy's mind as he sort of declines and then it, and then is pulled back. He describes like being pulled back from falling off a cliff by his friends. And, and that that sort of yo-yoing happens a couple of times, not only to him, but to um, effing in his retelling of the story and then in his actual life. And then Barber also later. Um, there's, a, there's a theme with all of these three men of sort of being constantly on the edge of just giving in to, to, to death and suicidal sort of ideations and but it's never they all in certain ways commit types of long form slow suicide right it seems like a heritable trait because they're all related right yeah so so you know um barber is of course like the big thing about him is that he's like like extraordinarily fat and it's talked about as him sort of just you know in, even in his own mind eating himself to death and just kind of retreating into this fortress of his own body um mm-hmm. after his his uh disgrace with having sex with his student um and effing of course essentially commits suicide by he's a very old sort of frail guy and he insists on going out in the rain one night and gets sick and, and then dies that way um and then uh, uh marco you know it's sort of trying to starve himself to death multiple times, basically. But this is, um, <laughs> so this is on, on, it's on the PDF. It's on page 67. Um, so this is for context. He's been homeless for a little while living in Central Park and he's seeking refuge from a, a, a rainstorm that had happened the night before. And he's trying to sort of recover from that. Um, 
so it says he's he's just tried to dry his hair on like a, a a blow dryer in a bathroom. To my horror, the gusts of hot air puffed up my hair into a ridiculous angle, and I wound up looking like a gargoyle, a crazed figure jutting from the bell tower of some gothic cathedral. Desperate to undo the mess, I impulsively loaded my razor with a fresh blade, the last one in my knapsack, and started hacking off my wild serpent locks. By the time I was, I'm, I'm getting Britney Spears vibes here already. <laughs> By the time I was finished, my hair was so short that I scarcely recognized myself anymore. It accentuated my thinness to an almost appalling degree. My ears stuck out, my Adam's apple bulged, my head seemed no bigger than a child's. I'm starting to shrink, I said to myself, and suddenly I heard myself talking out loud to the face in the mirror. Quote, don't be afraid, my voice said. No one is allowed to die more than once. The comedy will be over soon and you'll never have to go through it again. And I think it's funny because the, one of these, one of the things that the, the sort of theme that I was pointing out is that these people all effectively do die multiple times. Effing, Thomas Effing literally at one point fakes his own death and um, it goes and hides out in the wilderness. Uh, and so he literally dies a, a couple times. And so I thought that it was just sort of an interesting commentary on one of the running themes in the book, which is these brushes with suicide and brushes with death that these characters all experience multiple times. It's also very jokerified. Yeah, and I think that. <laughs> yeah, I I think that like, like I said before, like the 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 common theme or common thread that these characters all kind of experience the same thing, or like a similar experience in a in a way, but might be slightly different. That's that's the Paul Oster trope. Um, I will say that even though all their experiences were, were very similar, their characterization and their motives were also very different than each right. from each other. Like I, I thought that M, I thought that MS's reasoning for doing this like self-imposed uh, homelessness was because of traumatic experience. Like he 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 was basically. He he was in trauma. Like he, he lost his mom. He had he didn't know who his dad was, and then he lost he loses his uncle Victor, who was, he was closest to, and it sets him off into the deep end. With uh with Barber, it's it's a lot different, and I I like his reasoning a lot more for for becoming like fatter than ever. Like <laughs> he's super fat, and then he uh. I mean, it's later re revealed that Barber is the son of MS, and what happened was he was MS a teacher is the at son a... of Barber. Yeah, sorry. So what what's later revealed is that Barber had an affair with his, which is MS's mom, when she was nineteen, a student at the college he was working at, and he was like in his thirties or something, and he gets fired. Um. And then he. Uh, just like eats more and more i think at that point he was like 250 pounds but i i love the progression from like i care about being this fat i care about what people think of me to suddenly he takes this turn of like i don't care anymore i'm and then i'm going i'm going bald or i'm gonna shave my head and i'm gonna wear hats now he's jokerfied as well he, he like Very jokerfied well he's not jokerfied i don't think he's jokerfied i think he's, he's wearing a trill i think he's I think he's sternerified. I think he's pretty sterner in his fatness. I don't know about that, my man. 
<laughs> I, I, I don't think he is. I, I don't know. I think, we should I think he is. Don't think we should debate the the nuances of Sterner's philosophy on this topic. But he's he's not. He's it's, very spooked. He's it is too spooked. bad. It's too. Yeah. What? It's too bad that we 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 can't debate Sterner philosophy because I I was thinking about Sterner throughout this book. Well, I mean, it's, it's I mean, a great. Ex- I, yeah. Yeah. It's a great example of of people who are like. It's a great example of like notionally being free in some other direction that is deeply destructive and not in line at all with, I would say, what what Max Turner is ever talking about. It, you know. Well, I, I, I think there's a big there's a big like shadow over the whole book and all the characters of something very religious. Like there's a lot of religious implications like and shame and guilt that's very religious based. I don't know if you guys picked up on that, but every time it came up, I was like, wow, this person like MS in particular is very conscious of some sort of religious action and religious thought because he's constantly like shameful of his actions and constantly just like, like guilt ridden. Well, and 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 especially there's, you know, especially early on when he's going sort of yo-yoing between this homeless sort of sort of self you know monk it, it really is a sort of self-denial ideology of self-denial and then he sort of you know he there's a paragraph that I, I didn't know I didn't write down or I didn't note but there's a section where he talks about you know he's essentially I'm gonna overcorrect in the other direction it was all about me before and I was very sort of thinking about myself and everything was internalized and now I'm I'm, I'm only gonna be for other people I'm only, only gonna be altruistic and I'm gonna be help help people all the time so I do definitely think Paul that you're you're right that he has this sort of um sense of of an external sort of order or 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 uh judgment that he needs to be aware of and I mean, it it may be relevant to, to this that he explicitly has um, anti-abortion sentiments that he talks about sort of yeah. towards the end. Yeah. When he gets exactly, killed. yeah. Matt, did you get any of this at all? Yeah. Well, I was about to say his his like trenchant pro-life stance at the end. I guess kind of didn't seem in line with his character when I was reading it initially, but framed overall i can see that that was always a possibility and he and he does seem almost detached from his own vehemence that an abortion should never happen at least like of his own child uh in a way where he 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 seems like an automaton for this 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 notion almost like he's not in control he's he's just like the more i try and the more i sort of intellectually understand that i should be <laughs> a little bit more lenient or comforting to my girlfriend or and whatnot the the more entrenched and and dug in i get about this and angry and stuff so that yeah that was the first time a, it ever felt like an explicitly a, an idea tied so closely to religion See, and for, for me that was head. like within the context for me that was like the oh sorry go ahead Gabe. Um, you know, within the context of the story, his position on that question is explained by the fact that he was a sort of child of this problem, you know, socially problematic, you know, sort of um, birth, where his mother, he was, you know, essentially a bastard child of a single mother whose father conceived him in a disgraceful way. And 
a lot of social pressure would have been put on his mother to possibly have an abortion and she came close i think it comes up once or twice and so he sort of you know sees his own life as the product of someone you know choosing to not have an abortion and that that's that's sort of what ex what is supposed to explain his view i, I was i was just going to say that like for me i i i thought of that um like his anti-abortion stance as being like the cherry on top of what I already perceived of him. Because I, I, I read so many little religious at, like moments within the text that I was like, yeah, his, like his, his motives are totally influenced by his religion. Even if he's like not a religious person, I thought that he was totally like, just like controlled by martyrdom or some sort of like, like other being judge judging him at all times and that's kind of why i thought that he uh chose to be homeless and chose to like punish himself i thought of it i thought of himself as being some sort of like cathartic like instrument of of his religion and he was like punishing himself for being i don't even know for being guilty or something did you like punishment and that didn't make me he really likes punishment. Like e even with like him going and working for effing, I would have quit that job after one day, but he sticks with him until the very fucking end. Like he's, he's all about like sticking through a thing and sticking through an act and sticking through a job. Like even when Barber was like, you know, let's go search for the cave where your where effing's pa uh, paintings could be. He was like, well, my boss could like would it would really hurt my boss? And he's like, "You work for a furniture company. Like, what are you talking about? Just fucking quit." And it, it, like it, his his innate sense of being is like, "I'm loyal. I have to stick with the certain. I have to stick with my boss. I have to stick with my God." I think he's. I think he's the, another believable aspect because again, I think MS is pretty thinly drawn, and I uh, I, I think that's intentional in some ways. Uh, when he's called, you know, the ideal listener yep. and all this kind of stuff. I think those are very like intentional tropes being used again. But uh, I think, I think he's a very convincing amount of conflicted in basically everything that he does. Cause what, what about his, uh, his bro? I, I forget Zimmer and stuff. Zimmer. Like, Zimmer. And, and, you know, obviously Kitty and the, and the abortion argument that he has is the biggest, I don't know conflict he has with somebody he ostensibly loves and cares about but you know he, he's he's flip-flopping he's 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 a young man he's uh he's at the cusp of a, a weird time in, in american history which is significant uh i don't know uh, and like so he's at once extremely guilty and 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 ridden with all these inherited i would say uh, senses of shame and whatnot, but but also he like loves Dostoevsky and he's he's a nihilist explicitly and you know wants to die and and I think it, he just ping pongs back and forth uh, between these two or not two necessarily but between these like contradictory untenable uh, positions in his head. I I agree with that. I looked yeah yeah I I I thought that his like his education was more of like a front of how he actually wants to be, but the religious like the religious aspect of of his being was like always in the forefront i don't know 
I didn't pick up on that. I could just not have been sensitive because that seems like the right assessment of some, you know, people from the 60s shrugging off all the, you know, staid moralism of the of the 50s and, and beyond, you know, before. Um, which I think the the throwbacks into previous time periods and the similarities of the experiences that these people have had from different generational standpoints is supposed to remove that idea that there's any kind of difference generationally or whatnot. You know what I mean? Like that any age is, is really at root different from any other age. Yeah. I mean, so feel me. I, yeah, I feel you. I think. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's address the elephant in the room here, which is that basically in my opinion <clears throat> and uh, Paul, if, if I, I, if you could hold your fire for just a few minutes here, this book is basically existential Forrest Gump. <laughs> and, uh, in, and here's, here's why I'm saying that. In the broadest possible sense, it's the weird life and weird times of some weird guys. And I think that's basically what Forrest Gump is also. And I think that there are, there are some superficial and non-superficial parallels in the sense that this book is is set at roughly the same time that much of Forrest Gump is set, sort of Vietnam War era, hippie movement, um, that sort of thing. Uh, there is a there is a um, very enigmatic sort of strange paralyzed character in a wheelchair that the main character <laughs> is tasked with taking care of, who shapes his his worldview in many ways, uh, and who whose death he ultimately sort of oversees and is intimately involved with um and a whole, big part of the book is about sort of these yeah like these shifting um times of life and these big life events that are intertwined with big shifting historical events uh and of course there you know effing's effing's description of his life his sort of dictating his obituary slash biography to Marco is is filled with these bizarre, over the top, insane, coincidental, and strange stories of him going out to the American Southwest and like living in a cave, painting for months, and interacting with bandits and you know Native American people and uh, all that sort of thing. And and, and I think that you know even at the even right at the end, the book basically ends with. Um, Marco essentially going on a cross-country run like Forrest Gump. He, yes. He's, he's literally hitchhiking to the Pacific Ocean. Yep. And um, that's how the book ends. So I do think both thematically and in some some arguably more or less superficial ways, I'm I'm saying inter this is this is existential Forrest Gump is the is the best sort of Summation. Can I can I respond since it's my pick? This feels like the debates. Yeah, no, I, I, I can mean, I respond? Let me. I, I, all I want to say, my last thing that I want to say is that this is not <laughs> this is not an indictment. Like Forrest Gump, fucking rules. I love Forrest Gump, and I it think does rule. It's just like no. I, I forget. It does rule. Someone it's said a, it was highlights for baby boomers, and I forget who that was, but yeah. <laughs> I think the biggest, okay, like I understand that there are certain superficial aspects that relate to the, both of these 
things that are, I, I, you could equate to each other. But I think the biggest thing is like, okay, Fang was in a wheelchair, Lieutenant Dan was in a wheelchair. But that's not the biggest, the biggest thing. No. No, no. It's not, but it, it might be one of the biggest la- like things you could latch on to. Be like, oh, that's Forrest Gump, wheelchair. Ooh. It's like, I just don't. I don't. <laughs> oh, my God. And also, like, the thing at the end, like, Man. okay, uh, MS, MS walks across the country. It's like the last two pages he, like, walks r- across the country. It's not, like, a big aspect of his life. Listen, it, man. It's let, just... me, let me keep going. Let I'm me keep sorry. going. The, okay, so, like, but between Lieutenant Dan and Effing, um, I would say that Forrest Gump actually teaches Lieutenant Dan more about life than Lieutenant Dan teaches about F, uh, about life to Forrest Gump. And, and I think that that's a big difference between MS and Effing. Effing doesn't learn anything from from MS other than like you're that's a good not, listener. That is not clear to me. I don't think I I don't think I agree with that. I don't think it's I think that MS became like a good friend to him. But that was basically it. He he respected him for being who he was and speaking his mind. And he respected him for sticking with him. But there was nothing that effing learned from MS. All I'm going to say is the original, the Forrest Gump was a book and that it came out in, in 1986. I don't know. The timeline's that up. Uh... Paul, Oster, Paul Oster, you're a fraud. You copied the book Forrest Gump. Paul Oster could have that, maybe been clowning on it a bit because it was also a paperback sensation, I believe, when it came yeah. out. But I, I, I think, hmm, yeah, I, I, I think you can't deny. I mean, there's tropes. There's tropes. They're using, they're using certain themes and and imagery, and literal events <laughs> that are the same. I just want to go on the record as to saying that I, I saw nothing. If I were to read this book and not have Gabe and Matt talking to me while I was reading it, I would have, I would have saw zero similarities. You were trying to make you see the light, baby. I think no, I'm, I'm, you're, you're trying to make me see the darkness of Tom Hanks. <laughs> I mean, he is eating babies, but. I think I think Paul that you're 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 focusing too much on the main character. I'm not saying that Fog and Forrest Gump are similar as characters. They're not. They're very they're very different. But the structure of the story in terms of these, you know, improbable, bizarre historic in some cases historically interrelated and connected events, you know, for example, I mean, even something little like like the guy that um, Fogg speaks to on the phone trying to get some information about his uncle Victor's death is named Neil Armstrong in the year of the moon landing. And yes. that, like, like, so all of these bizarre sort of little mini historical connections that are interwoven with the, the sort of big, you know, shifts in their lives. And this is not just Fogg. This is Effing's story and, and, and um, Barber as well. That's just what that's Forrest Gump, baby. Well, okay. What what I'm trying to say is that like the the claim you're trying to make is sort of like <laughs> what I what I'm hearing is that like you're trying to make it sound like Dances with Wolves influenced Avatar and and Pocahontas. Like those those three movies are like fucking the same movies. What? You haven't heard that before? No, I mean yes, but I don't know what that has to do with the point I'm making. 
what I'm saying is that those those similarities are very like you can make an argument for that for sure. Like, I am. I just wolves, didn't make an argument for this. He is. It's not even close, though. Like it's not like even. It. You just no. Yeah, you it's just not even close. Around. It's not even close. <laughs> Forrest Gump is a Gryffindor. <laughs> Forrest Gump is a Gryffindor for one thing. He's a Gryffindor. Fog you're, is a you're doing Fog. you're doing the you're doing the thing that I just accused you of doing, which is focusing on the main character. I'm not talking about that. Yeah, but you should be because the movie is called Forrest Gump. It's the main character's name. There doesn't have to be a Forrest Gump. So, first Gump. of all, there doesn't have to be a Forrest Gump in something for something to be Gumpy in. Right. Well, okay. Okay. Even if you're talking about the structure of Forrest Gump as opposed to the structure of this book, vastly different. <laughs> this, this, this book is three different acts. Forrest Gump is like what? Like seven acts? It's, it's like, it's totally different structure wise. I, I, I don't see it at all. Well, Forrest Gump. Honestly, ultimately, I mean, it, it feels because the, the, Gabe, you'd brought up coincidences, which is another thing that I think Auster is actively yes. dealing with as something that's stupid and silly and, you know, like innately unbelievable every time. And so as a writer, you try and avoid such a thing and the reality of them as a thing that occurs. And, and you know, this is this is something that writers have been struggling with probably in storytelling all the time uh oh my god i fucking lost my train of thought well, and, and, oh, but, oh. If, yeah go ahead go ahead i was just gonna say like you know forrest gump he's almost like being there he's like a, a simpleton that i don't know he almost like he has a dignity and whatnot but like in in this book there there was a line that i tried to remember before and it was something about uh, like Fog, when he was feverish and, and homeless, started to describe his life as literally a joke answer that I think Gabe gave about something in one of the, our previous episodes where he was just like, I love, it's a, my, it's about events happening in a sequence. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, it's just, it, he boil at some point he just boils it down to like the literal essentials of just events happening in a context in uh, order, a particular order. And I think, I mean, one of the other things that further supports that, Matt, I think, is that the, the the coincidence and sort of random events occurring uh, in in ways that we generate meaning from is an explicit theme in this book that's talked about right. a number of times, um, and which is also a very explicit theme in Forrest Gump, uh, yes. with, with Forrest Gump meeting and interacting with all of these people at precisely the right moment and precisely the right thing happening. So, you know, I mean, effing, effing has this all, whole, whole sort of vague theory of everything about the universe. He doesn't believe in coincidences and they talk about that multiple times. Um, and then right at the end, towards the end, when uh, uh, he first meets Barber, I'll just read this. This is when it's sort of... Uh, is first hinted at that um, Fogg's mother is the the student that Barber had sex with. Um, so this is uh, Barber talking now. I once knew someone by the name of Fogg, he said at last, a long time ago. It's not the most common name, I said, but there are a few of us around. This Fogg was a student of mine back in the 40s. I had only just started teaching them. Do you remember his first name? I remember, yes, but it wasn't a man. It was a young woman, Emily Fogg. She was a freshman in my American history class. Do you know where she was from? Chicago. I think it was Chicago. 
My mother's name was Emily and she came from Chicago. Could there have been two Emily Foggs in the same city at the same college? It's possible, but I don't think it's very likely. The resemblance is too strong. I recognized her the moment you walked into the room. One coincidence after another, I said, the universe seems to be filled with them. If that's not a Forrest Gump line, I don't know what is. Yeah, I, the one concession I'll give to Paul that like is the huge difference is more an emphasis rather than a total change and it's or like absence, which is that I think coincidence is dealt with cheekily and cautious, you know, cautiously here as maybe evidence of a kind of unified theory of everything or, or some kind of, you know, interwoven, I don't know, reality. Whereas Gump just revels in the delight of, you know, a retarded guy being meeting President Nixon right. and like inventing shit happens. <laughs> phrase. Right. Like yeah. That. I mean, it's like whimsical and just like sort of having fun with that idea. Right. Yeah. I just didn't, I, I don't think I grasp onto that idea to that like wholeheartedly, I guess. I, I mean, I kind, I do kind of see it, but I, I'm still just having, I'm, I'm struggling with it just because like the differences are, are greater than the connections to me. So here's another sort like, of trite fra uh, little passage that felt <laughs> comfy <in laughs> to me. What page is this on the PDF map? I got I'm physical copy gang right oh, now. Oh damn! Okay. Yeah. Uh, you you fucking guys. Paul Oster is a genius. I I'm not gonna I'm not leveling any sort of judgment on him as a writer uh, by one book alone. I uh, do want to talk about his. We haven't talked about his writing style. I do want to talk about that too. Okay. I just want to read Go this ahead. one passage. Uh, it's kind of adjacent to what Gabe was talking about. Uh, this is effing, I think, having kind of a stonery revelation uh, where he says, if you think about it long enough, it will turn your brain inside out. A here exists only in relation to a there, not the other way around. There's this, there's this only because there's that. If we don't look up, we'll never know what's down. Think of it, boy. We find ourselves only by looking at what we're not. You can't put your feet on the ground until you've touched the sky. Jenny, which Je Jenny, <laughs> and that's Jenny. <laughs> well, no, you know it, it's for an eighty whatever year old man. Effing was seems like you know I don't know. He's getting excited. He's on meds at that point. If he's Loves getting it. that excited about that, oh yeah. But at the same time, contains the profound truth. But you know, it's it's so profound that it's eye rolling. Right, I, I suppose. Paul did it. Paul actually rolled his eyes and he sucked on his jewel. Paul, Paul, Paul has entered his, his alternative uh, identity, which is not Paul, not Paulie, but salty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not salty. I just, I, I, I really enjoyed this book and I get the sense that you guys didn't enjoy it. I, I really liked it a lot. I, I don't know where I you mean, get that. I'm just talking about Forrest Gump, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Forrest Gump is a, a dipshit movie. Dipshit. <laughs> you just said you loved it. <laughs> You're letting I, us... I, I do. I do. I love it in the way that I love, like, Independence Day. You know, I, I, I would... I would. Not I even close. I think of Paul Oster as being a, a little bit above Independence Day. Like, light years above. I mean, I... 
I think in the last book we read, the Divinity Student, we talked like there were. Um, I I listened to an or I read an interview where the guy, like the author, said that he's interested in writing in a, in a way that like basically hypnotizes the the reader, and that's what he likes about about writing, and that's what he likes about reading. And I thought I think that Paul Oster does that for me. Like I thoroughly enjoy just re like the act of reading when I'm reading his books I, I I love the act of reading just as him being a writer I think he's an amazing writer I read his books and I'm just like enthralled and I read everything very very quickly and I think that's partially what he's going for too like he wants to create inter interesting characters above almost anything else he wants you to be enthralled in the characterization and that's one thing i really like about reading in general I, I like interesting characters so that's one thing that i took away from this book in particular i thought every character was immensely interesting and i, I thought that their the amount of like screen time they got was awesome like it's like you get you get lore from every for every character you get tons of lore. Like there's there's one page I highlighted <laughs> where effing is 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 a uh, drinking soup and it's disgusting. He's an old man yeah. in his 80s drinking soup and he drinks it like so loudly and he just doesn't give a shit. He's just like I'm going to drink the soup and I'm, I'm going to be nasty cuz I don't give a shit. Like only MS is around me and my servant woman is around me. I'm going to eat the soup the way that I want. And the way that it's Should described, I, I, I do an extended reading of that passage. I have it. Yeah. Read it. Yeah. It's like a whole page. Do right? it. Yeah. All right. So, um, uh, this is, he's, yeah. So he's describing their, their, their usual meal. Effing didn't eat much, but the little he did eat was consumed in a mad free-for-all of slobbering grunts and spills. It disgusted me to watch this spectacle, but I had no choice but to endure it. Whenever Effing sensed that I was staring at him, he would immediately bring out an even more repulsive battery of tricks, letting the food dribble out of his mouth and down his chin, burping, feigning nausea and heart attacks, removing his false teeth and putting them on the table. <laughs> he was especially fond of soups, and all during the winter we began every meal with a different one. Mrs. Hume, who's the, the sort of like physical caretaker of effing, made these soups herself, delicious pots of vegetable soup and watercress soup and leek and potato soup. But I quickly came to dread the moment when I would have to sit down and watch effing suck, suck it into his mouth. It was, not, <laughs> it was not that he slurped. He positively vacuumed it up, piercing the air with all the clamor and commotion of a defective Hoover. This noise was so unnerving, so distinctive that I began hearing it all the time, even when we were not sitting at the table. <laughs> even now, if I manage to concentrate hard enough, I can bring it back in so many of its subtle characteristics. The shock of the first moment when Effing's lips met the spoon, the shattering, the quiet with a monumental intake of breath, the prolonged high-pitched ruckus that followed, a blistering uproar that seemed to turn the liquid into a concoction of gravel and broken glass as it traveled down his throat. <laughs> <laughs> the second's so good. Yeah, that shit's good. The short pause that came next, the clank of the spoon as it hit the bowl, and then the heave and shudder of an outward breath. He would smack his lips at that point, perhaps even grimace with pleasure, and then begin the process all over again, filling the spoon and lifting it to his mouth. 
always with his head hunched forward to shorten the journey between bowl and mouth, but nonetheless with a shaking hand, which would send small streams of soup splattering back into the bowl as the spoon neared his lips. And then there would be a new explosion, a new splitting of the ears as the suction was turned on again. Mercifully, he rarely finished an entire bowl of the stuff. Three or four of these cacophonous spoonfuls were generally enough to exhaust him, after which he would shove the bowl aside and calmly ask Mrs. Hume what she had prepared. I don't know how many times I heard this noise, but often enough to know that it will never leave me and I will be carrying it around in my head for the rest of my life. That's one of the best passages. I mean, it's so good. Again, Paul, you seem to insinuate that we we didn't enjoy ourselves, but there are moments like that where I laughed reading that and I just laughed again. And he's clearly a phenomenal writer. So, yeah. Well, I, I think that what I like about him most is that, like, he gives characters lore in the past like <laughs> well i was about to say this isn't lore based this is his descriptive abilities of this moment that's hilarious are hilarious but it has nothing yeah, I, guess, to do. I guess i guess it has, it, i guess it's not lore based but it's like this overabundance of physical characterization is what i really like about paul oster's writing is like his characters to me like i could see them in the fucking room like Barber to me, I, I love that character. Just like this immensely fat man who eats himself to death and went bald and wears a bunch of hats, but is also like a very prominent like literary man who like I don't know. I, I, I want to know this guy. And I and even Fogg, like I would be friends with Fogg. Like even though he like I don't like him, you're you're reading like the most immensely passionate readings of this guy's life and they're forgivable but they're also like fuck you dude you're an asshole I, I think, um, well i do agree with matt that fog i think is as a character it's it's a strange phenomenon because we see the whole thing through his perspective but he is still sort of this cipher who can't who cannot make sense of himself and therefore we can't really make sense of him in a lot of ways um i definitely i agree with you that the other characters uh barber and and effing who effing i basically see as a a hybrid of lieutenant dan and dr finkelstein from a nightmare before christmas <laughs> <laughs> that's good sally sally that's great I mean, let's, let's, I mean, literally the soup description, the guy loves soup. Yes. So he literally, uh, Paul Oster is a complete sham and stole Nightmare Before Christmas and Forrest Gump. And- frog's breath. <laughs> frog's breath. There's nothing frog's more breath. suspicious than well, frog's I, breath. I tell you. Well, I think I, that like what. That spoonful. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking great movie. Uh, anyway, the point I was making was that I think these these other these other characters, you're right, Paul, they're much more vividly um, outlined. They're much more vividly described, both physically and sort of like their behavior. Uh, and I think, you know... Fog, Every single one. I, I don't think Fog is. Nor Kitty would. No, I think... No, I think Kitty is pretty... I think Kitty is pretty... <laughs> like, maybe she... she <laughs> I think Kitty I is pretty, yeah. She's pretty. No, I think out of all the characters, Kitty and Fog are probably like the least described, but I still get a big sense of who they are from reading the novel. I don't know. I, I 
for me it was it was uh i i didn't i'm i'm criticizing the thing i overall thought it was a little weak just because i i found i i i think i get what the uh some of the attempts were in terms of the themes and i it just felt a little like paced a little awkwardly you know you, you it's like uh the form is doing its function or whatever but in a way that's bad where again i'll just go back to the thing things happening to people in a sequence it, it, but it really started to feel that way during some of the like especially like effing's uh obit kind of dictation um it, it just dragged a little bit as yeah, far as I, was I definitely i agree i definitely found chunks of both that section where effing is dictating his 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 life and his yeah his obituary his biography whatever we're calling it and the section where we get essentially a a a complete play-by-play -play of um barber's like attempted novel i found both that drag I found both of those sections to be like pretty tedious at points and i found myself like checking ahead multiple times like how much longer is this going on and i think yeah. there's supposed to I be mean, narratives that you know you it's supposed to be overtly a narrative because right. again i think this is very much about you got this cypherish kind of thinly you know drawn kind of you know overeducated hyper reader who essentially read a library alone in an apartment now being the quote unquote perfect listener to these other narratives who are also like literally part of his genetic lineage and all these kind of things resonating with each other see i, I thought that the only time I, I was like oh this is dragging was when he was given the pl the play-by-play -play of barber's novel i was like what the this is taking a long time but i was enthralled the whole time i was reading effin's uh obituary section i thought that was awesome well here's, um, here's what it was for me with the obituary section it wasn't that the content was uninteresting it was and i would have been thrilled to read that as like a short <laughs> novella or something honestly but it was this conscious feeling of like the rest of this book is being eaten up page by page by this description. And I don't necessarily see why. And I still don't. Well, that's what I, I think that that, yeah. you know, that, that partakes with the New York trilogy too. Like the, the New York trilogy is a three, it was a three novella book. Like, and I almost think of this book as being the same way. Like I think of the, the three sections as being very different than each other. Like you, you almost like stop and start three times. Well, they are, but it's not, um, I mean, it's not, an, it's not the New York trilogy. It's a continuous story with one, with the same character. No, but I read it. I read it as the same way. Maybe it's because I've read the New York trilogy before and I had that in mind when I read it, but like, I kind of got what, especially by the third act, I got what he was doing more. It was just like, okay, there are three different stories happening in this, in this book. And there's a lot of stopping and starting and I'm okay with that. Um, I guess I was just most emotionally invested in MS because the beginning was probably my favorite part, except for incidental descriptions of Barber or things like effing eating soup. <laughs> 
where I was like, okay, well, this is a little, this is color and, and this is like showcasing things that I, I wish would be more consistently in the book. Um, and, and, but I, I was still more interested in like MS and his plight and where he was landing. Cause he seemed like such a, you know, I, I obviously Auster is writing from probably the reason that character is so vivid and cringe inducing for me early on is cause you know, he, he's probably very similarly educated and has similar predilections of, of reading and all that kind of stuff, which is why that character, I don't know. I agree. I mean, I think so. Well, I think my, my favorite parts in the book, you know, I found, you know, for example, the ending where he's standing on the shores of, of the Pacific Ocean and, and even, you know, a lot of the stuff leading up to it, like his fight with his fight with Kitty. I found that stuff to be genuinely emotionally affecting and actually like really well done. Um, yeah. And so like having that experience, I'm kind of like, I, I just wish that that was more of the story rather than this literally like i mean it's it's literally like probably 80 pages of effings you know dictating his obituary and i was like I, it, it, was, it was just a little bit of a disconnect to me because i felt like so much of the stuff that was done really well had to do with ms directly and his own feelings and his own experiences with his friends with kitty um and i kind of wanted more of that And aside from, you know, Barber and Barber and Effing, obviously, again, it's like multi-generational grandfather, father, son, inherited narratives, et cetera, the, the, the scintillating feeling of just coincidences occurring across time and all this kind of stuff. It mostly just felt like, like examples of how narratives repeat and how they can both be a little bit like cliche while still being true or something like that you know and so when you have somebody like i mean it's a 300 page book and, and you have some you have effing's portion being uh you know 80 pages yeah it, it just it just felt a little bit like gut like the gut was sagging in the middle of the thing experientially for me as well yep i think i think that i I was okay with any sagging notions because <laughs> I think that uh, Paul Oster for me, I, I just love his writing so much. It's so clear and concise. It's like, it's how I like to read. And I think that one thing that our book club has taught me in the last however months is that like, one thing I like about reading is just, I like reading clear, concise writing. I, I, that's like really valuable to me as a reader. That's interesting. And I, I think it's totally true. Like I, I actually think that Paul Oster resonates with me the same way that Murakami re re resonates with me. I, I like to be kind of drawn into like a hypnotic state when I read. It's enjoyable for me. And maybe that's like, I don't know. I, I, mean, think I, it's, I, it's, I mean, maybe we don't need to get into this too deeply, but like, it's interesting that I, I guess I just don't really, those, those things all sound different to me. Like part, like part of me and Matt's, what we're saying is precisely that it was not concise, <laughs> that it was like, it, 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 yeah, it's a clear writer and it's not like, but, but he also, he's also very kind of like, I find Paul Oster to be very sort of, 
esoteric and arcane and he, he always bring, he brings in all these weird references and these references to these old obscure historical figures and books and concepts and i'm not saying that it's unclear for that reason but it's i i, I guess i wouldn't it's not like hemingway or somebody when it's where it's these like very like precise sharp sentences that just get across the the the, the point or get across what's happening it's not that at all, and and I think I find it interesting that that's your experience of reading it, and I also just well, don't I th think like the 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 sort of hypnotic trance state or whatever. That's not something that I associate with like concision either. That's something that I associate with this sort of like long kind of winding stuff of of like Cisco or like Krasnohorkai. Yeah. yeah, yes. See, for me, I don't. I didn't have that feeling at all reading those books at all. It was like a it was a drag for me to read that. I, I think that what I'm saying is that like, even if like the overall structure- liking, You're not liking a book at some level, I guess. That's not fair. That's not fair. I, I, what, what I'm saying is that like the overall sentence structure and paragraph structure that Paul Oster uses, I really, really like. Like when, when I'm just reading a chapter of his, I get enthralled with the way he writes. And maybe there are certain aspects of the overall structure of the whole story that I don't totally understand or maybe disagree with. Like, I, I think that overall, the, the three lineage structure that he did, I think it's kind of ham-fisted. I think that the, the, the coincidences are kind of like, they're too much for me. Like, this whole story focused around a grandson, a father, and a, and a, and a grandfather. And it at the end, when I realized that they were all interconnected, I was like, this is too much of a coincidence for me, like as an overall telling of a story. But that doesn't mean that when I was reading it in the act of reading, I was totally enthralled by the way he writes sentences and paragraphs. Like that's what I really, really like about how he writes. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, I do think that it, it is ham fisted. I kept coming back to the word when I was reading it. It's like, oh, especially when it gets to like the last hundred pages with Barber and it's his father. I'm like, all right, this is like a little too many coincidences for me. But still, I really, really enjoy the way he writes. And I think that like if we're if we're being in a book club and talking about books, I think that is something we should talk about is like how how a writer actually writes what he's saying is important to the reader yeah and that that can that can go a long way for anybody like you can agree with with the idea of a book or like the philosophy of a book but if it's not written in a way that you find appealing that's not enjoyable it can really like be a lot worse in your rating or whatever that's what isn't Which, that what we're talking about right now baby yeah, I was about to say, this is like what I think one of the themes of the book of Moon Palace is as well, which is why I think you get the semi, like, you know, the semi-truthful autobiography dictated by an old man looking back groggily a bit on his right. life versus the fantastic child, you know, sort of childhood fantasy tale, pulp magazine kind of story that Barbara writes about a fictional self finding a fictional father 
and literally incorporating a creation myth about moon people into it. Uh, I think the notion of what constitutes something that's entertaining versus uh, how, how, you know, I guess at this point in, in, right. You know, in history of the sixties, like how genre convention and hap, uh, co coincidental turns and all this kind of stuff that you are used to move plot along can either remove or engage you. And uh, I think that is one of the central tensions. I just don't, and, and I like those themes and questioning them. I just happened to think that in this book, the only book of Paul Auster's I've ever read, uh, I, I think he just fumbles a bit for me personally. I don't know if, I, I don't know. I, I see your connections to Murakami superficially just because this is the only book of Paul Auster's I read, just because he also does this kind of, you know, you you, del you delve into, you start off at a, a singular point with a character who's kind of like uh, very barely described. There's a lot of like book and musical references and things sort of slowly elaborate into something much more Baroque and oftentimes fantastical by the end of it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, it's not a knock on his style or ability to write so much as just this, in this particular case, I don't know, holistically, like the book didn't work and that affects my overall opinion about the experience, I guess. Yeah, I think it's, that's totally fair. I think that I'm giving him more of the benefit of the doubt because I've read other books and they worked a lot more as a whole overall structure for me. Um, this one I think did fall flat in a lot of ways, but I still hold it as a pretty high level at a pretty high level because I think that his writing is just so great for me as a reader. I just, I just like, I connect with it. Like it, it almost feels like a, like I'm reading it and it's like, it feels like music to me. I feel like that sounds like I put like gems on my, my chest when I go to sleep or something, but <laughs> The, the rhythm of his writing just like really connects with me like I, it's I like love, poetry I, it rhymes it's like poetry it rhymes Full circle yeah. baby we did and we did it were there any um other specific passages or anything you guys wanted to hit on or or jump out to you i don't know i it was pretty like i said it was pretty front-loaded for me i'm trying to think i loved i mean that soup thing was definitely a big one for me as yeah, well. I was just thinking of, uh, you know, uh, that movie Mafia? Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, when, <laughs> sorry, Jay Moore's character is like all burned and in a wheelchair at the funeral and he's being fed pre-chewed canned peaches and he's like, <laughs> they're like slithering into his oh, burned God. shitty mouth. <laughs> like I was just seeing that. Let's see, what the fuck else do I got? Here? I think, uh, I mean, okay, so this is what I was sort of talking about when I was mentioning Auster's sort of ar arcane, arcanicism. I don't know if that's a word, but. Sure. Uh, this is when sort of um, in the in the sort of uh, salad days with with MS and Kitty after they get um, Effing's money Next when dude. he dies and they're sort of. Mac DeMarco. What? 
No, I just, oh sorry, my I God, Mac DeMarco. His name is Marco. <laughs> Salad days. Salad days. I'm just saying. Anyway. What a coincidence. Did Paul wow. Austin write this dialogue? Uh, did, he write all of, did he write all of Salad Days? Is he the actual author? of? He's the, the uh, ghostwriter. Mac DeMarco's never wrote a fucking song in his life. <laughs> Someone check the Mary's credits. Um, but this is, this is sort of what I was talking about. He's writing all these essays, you know, uh, and, and sort of just exploring sort of his thought or whatever. I can't remember all the pieces I worked on, but at least several of them come back to me when I strain hard enough. A meditation on money, for example, and another one on clothes, an essay on orphans, and a somewhat longer piece on suicide, which of course is one of the themes of the book, which was largely a discussion of Jacques Rigaud, a minor French Dadaist who declared at the age of 19 that he was giving himself 10 more years to live. And then when he turned 29, held good to his word and shot himself on the appointed day. That's basically what Effing did. That's basically how Effing died. He said, I'm dying yeah. on March 12th of this year, or whatever the date it was that he picked. And then he went out in the rain and got sick and then died on that day. And um, I just think that, that there's those sort of like weird, esoteric, arcane connections that are that are in there. I mean, and then, you know, again, sort of like Forrest Gump, there's the like he met like Tesla, and then there's this biography yep. of Tesla that's involved. And uh, you know, uh, all of these big historical figures that he sort of coincidentally sort of um, crosses their path with. And then it also comes back that a fortune cookie that MS opened had a saying that was originally written by Tesla when he was like, you know, so right. it's all of these like funny, we, you know, uh, maybe overdone kind of, like you said, Paul, coincidences. But uh, I think that's well, there's, there's I think a it's intentional and and sort of, um yeah well yeah it totally is intentional there's there's a quote that i have underlined from um when ms was talking about how victor could have seen uh barber in yes. st paul minnesota and he says we're at the world's fair that he, he yeah he t he tells ms that like he saw like a really huge fat guy eating somewhere in minnesota maybe at the, i forget where it was but he says like when he when he saw this guy he said anyone who eats like that is trying to kill himself he said to me it's the same thing as watching a man starve to death mm. and i was like that's an obvious parallel between like you know obviously barber doing the extreme opposite end of what ms did yep and i like that connection is like ms in the beginning is just starving himself to death he ends up being like 120 pounds by the time he gets like like re revived by kitty goals and zimmer but <laughs> inspiration barber Inspo. but barber does the opposite yeah barber does the opposite he's more just like i'm giving up on life and i'm just going to keep doing what i'm doing and i'm going to eat myself until i'm fat and bald but it's both for the same reason ultimately right which is that they're just giving up and saying fuck it i'm just going to do the do the do what i'm doing until i die yeah, I think there's some difference though. Like I still think Barber kind of like he was doing it for like similar reasons, but also like the reasonings that that he chose were a little more I don't know, they're not positive, but they're a little bit more like agreeable than the the reasons that MS MS did them. He like he was still living a life. He was still like I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to do what I wanted to do as be a professor. 
I'm not going to like have sex with, with a, one of my students ever again. And I'm becoming my own self by being like this fat guy who wears hats. And I'm like, I'm my own He's man just now. like Lizzo I, I or something. Of, like, he's just <laughs> like... <laughs> I think you're fat shaming him, to be honest. I think I, Paul Oster's fat shaming him. Yeah. No, I don't think he is. I think that there are aspects of what Oster was doing. I don't think he was, I don't think he was fat shaming at all. I think that he, he like gave credit where credit was due. I, I don't think he was shaming him at all. I think he I think he was saying that he came into his own and yeah, he was a mega fat man, but he was okay with it. He was okay right. with it. And like, who are you to judge? Like, yeah, it's like killing him, but he was actually more acceptable of himself and he was happier. Even though he I, was lonely, I think that he was happier. I think you're really underplaying the death drive that I think is like pretty clear in all three people, yep. unfortunately. Like, and I, I you do get the I mean, again, this is I'm not fat shaming. I'm not that guy. I don't do that. Okay, he dies of obesity-related complications after an in, an injury that he incurs at the end of the book that he could have survived from had he not been doing the things he had been doing over the course of his whole life. Yeah, it sounds like that you want him. You wish he would go work I, out. I wish he was alive because I loved him as a character, actually, Paul. So yeah. no, I don't know. I I think that. I don't think there was any. I don't think Paul Oster was like, this I guy mean, is okay failing but, as a human because he's fat. And no, he's, that's he's that's not that's not what that's not what I don't think that that's at issue at all. Well, the fact of the matter is that Barber's entire life is structured around the fact that he lost Emily and that he fucked up that relationship. And that he's never going to see her again. And that his life is essentially ruined at that point. This is why he's at the grave. This is why he's crying when he when he's there and Emily's dead is because that was his that was his whole sort of, you know, life uh, uh, plan. And it it's it doesn't work. It's impossible. And it was he was 29 years old when he fucked Emily. Right. She was 19. He's what, 50 plus years old now. And that's the only it's thing morbid and weird about. Yeah, that's not that's not happy that's very very sad it's fixated and yeah pathological i i think i read it as him being like okay with his sadness and that connects with me a little bit well yeah i mean there, there's some level of acceptance they talk about you know he knew he would never see her again and then when he found out he was dead it was just sort of confirming something he already knew but i don't know acceptance is not the same as like happiness <laughs> yeah no, there's no, resignation, is. which is what it feels like more for everybody. Yeah, you know? but I, I, I almost feel like there's a certain point in your life where you, you are like you you accept that resignation. And I feel like that's what he like where he was at. He was he was just like accepting of of himself and he was he like he formed some sort of reality that was like except acceptable to him and he went with it and he lived like a pretty good life for a number of years i don't know is it is it is it time can i just say one more i just wanted to throw out one more thing just a little idea and then it will be time 
but I, I, I thought it would just be important to say the phrase that I think the Forge Cookie said on it, which is that, what, the sun, the sun is the past, the earth is the present, and the moon is the future. Right. I mean, the book's called Moon Palace. There's a lot of moon imagery. We didn't really talk about it at all. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of it anyway. Um, but I think that little phrase is supposed to be, which is, I, and I, I love anything with the World's Fair, and I love looking at the past uh, projections of the future are always super funny and fascinating and really interesting. And that's like what the World's Fair kind of was, like America feeling itself and its technological progress marching forward and Tesla as like the central image, like character that I, I feel like effing most vibed with until he didn't anymore right. was just like you know even this great prognosticator of the future genius wizard potential alien you know according to some uh was just a doddering old man who was fucked over by <laughs> like edison yes and just like insane uh by the end of his life and he like saw him contemptuously as well and just, so and then you have these repetitions through multiple generations i i mean i think i think you're getting a bit of the darker side of paul Auster's notion of of the world and people's potential uh in stuff like that yeah and i we probably should at least mention i mean i think right like that the phrase that's on the fortune cookie about the sun and the moon and the earth is that what it is earth whatever yeah that's you know pretty 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 uh uh directly maps onto the three generations right the men that we that we see in the story um and maybe we should just say where the phrase moon palace comes from it's it's a it's a neon sign that he sees one night from his apartment uh as he's sort of slowly starving to death at the beginning and it's a it's a chinese restaurant um and that's where he goes and, and gets the fortune cookie that has that phrase is I moon do... face wrong to bring to bring up huh is the sort of slur moon face wrong to bring up I don't know. I mean, I, he has a Chinese girlfriend. I just, I don't know, man. It's the sixties. I don't know. Yeah. I, I actually don't, I'm not really familiar with that term. Fuck. All right. Well, glad I outed myself there. <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry <laughs> Potter. So I do, yeah. <laughs> I agree with you, man. I'm not exactly sure what to make out of all the moon stuff other than that sort of tri-generational thing with the fortune cookie. Um, yeah. And they just sort of, yeah there is a lot of moon imagery and there's a lot of sort of there's a lot of palace imagery in the sense that like you know he lo he lives in a cave effing lives in a cave and they make it into their own sort of like mm -hmm. you know places where they feel happy their little fortresses and there's a description of barber having that sort of relationship to his own body as well so right. um his head's that, a moon yeah that could be something also Anyway. It just seems like there was so much of that and we have so little to say about it. I feel kind of I mean, bad. I didn't feel like it was like overwhelming. Like I didn't, you know, I feel like it was a, a couple, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm not sweating it. Let's move on. Uh, so it's, that means, you know what that means? It's time for everyone's favorite segment. We literally just read another book. Copyright strike. No, you can hum it. 
in which we assign characters from the book that we just read to their respective Harry Potter houses, because that is an effective and intelligent way to interpret literature. It, it, totally. I refuse to move beyond uh, that kind of rubric. And I think we already got a sneak peek, folks. I know you guys got excited <laughs> when you heard it early on. But Paul, who's MS? Where is he? Where is he getting sorted to? He's fucking Cedric Diggory level Hufflepuff. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, no doubt. Right? Agreed. Yeah, the, the guy's a Hufflepuff. No question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like, a, like the strongest Hufflepuff you can be, though. Like, he's got tinges of that evil in positive... Hufflepuff in him. Yeah, yeah, but you can rape and be Hufflepuff though. <laughs> As we say, I forgot, dude. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, wait a second. Hold on, hold on. Is he Hufflepuff? Whoa. Hold yeah. Is he, he is. I mean, it's not clear to me that he's a particularly loyal or good friend. He just kind of lets people flow in and out of his life, basically. Like, there's a number of times where he's like, yeah, I said I would see, see this person again, including his best friend, Zimmer. And then he's like, and of course, I never did for 20 years. Yeah, Zimmer gets short shrift. Yeah, and that happens a, a couple other times, too. Um, yeah, but I think that loyalty doesn't have to just, re- like, relate to friendships. It can relate to just, like, how you act as a human. And he's so loyal to effing. And then, again, he's, like, so loyal to... Uh, I think the biggest aspect is that he's loyal to uh, the furniture moving company when he when he should be doing this thing like looking for the cave where his grandfather's parents are. He's just like, I think I need to stay at my job and just like do my job. I don't know. I just I found him to be loyal. Like that was like his number one attribute is just like I'm loyal and like I'm gonna read all of my uncle Victor's book. Yeah, that's true. To him, even though he's fucking. Like, even though he's fucking dead, like, who gives a shit? Yeah. Like, no, it's true. Don't read his books. I guess I just would, would, would push back a little bit in the sense that it, I don't think he does all of those things. Like, I don't think he stays with effing out of a sense of loyalty to effing. It's out of a sense of like self flagellating punishment for himself and or like trying to prove to himself that he can do something. I don't think it's loyalty. I think it's more related to him than it is to the other person. Uh, isn't that more isn't that still isn't that still hufflepuff though i don't know i'm with you i think it's hufflepuff but i think it's like like a soldier who's like i need to survive boot camp because i need to do this because it's like like hard and it'll like prove something to me and to the gods I yeah, now you're talking about the, like, the motivation I, I, for the loyalty. Which yeah, is I think ultimately question. he is still Hufflepuff, but I, I, I just thought it was important to flag that. You're um, right. It wasn't as cut and dry as we made it seem. Yeah. All right. Sorry, so meeting. About um, how about uh, Kitty Wu? Gryffindor. Griffin, Gryffindor. No, yeah. no. Kitty Wu is good Hufflepuff. Kitty, oh. Wu, Kitty Wu is just classic Hufflepuff. She, she literally meets this guy one time and she feels worried for him and tracks him down at his apartment to go like help him. You know what? You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. And then she, and like, literally like finds, with like. she literally tracks down his friend and they go find him when he's homeless in the park. Very lo- loyal, very good friend, very Hufflepuff. 
and that she has like a five-year relationship with him yes i don't know if it was that long but how about uh thomas effing yeah effing is a slytherin hmm i'm actually does what genuine thought he does he does what he wants for himself he he cheats on his wife and then he leaves and like goes on a self-inflicted like I want to know about the world for myself. Fakes his own and death. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna fake my own death so that I can have an easier time of living for myself. And then he murders three people. They were they were not to say they were gonna murder him, but he could have just left. But he chose to stay for like seven months and wait for them. So that yeah. he could murder them and like, stay in his cave. Yeah, for sure. And then when he keeps he's the also, money, when he keeps the money, he's very explicit. Like, I never I even it. thought about trying to give it yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does have like positive attributes. Like, he's like, I'm going to, uh, the last act he has in his life is like, I'm going to give strangers the $20,000 right. that I stole or whatever. That's true. He yeah. But give it back in the, at the end. But Snape is also a Slytherin. He has a big heart, so he's a like epic. Very true. Slytherins can have big hearts. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, let's talk about Solomon Barber. I feel like he is a Hufflepuff. (sighs) I'm I'm thinking Ravenclaw. I know, I know, I, I'm. That's my initial reaction, but I'm like, is it is it just because he's a college professor that I'm thinking that? Maybe, but is it just because he's fat? <laughs> he's awful. <fun. laughs> well, I mean, M- MS talks about his, like what he thinks his motivations are for his studies towards the end, and he says that they're like self-inflicted because of his past, and that makes him more Hufflepuff to me. Like he's trying to like he's doing it for himself and trying to like reason with with his existence, and it's he... it, it's not a it's not a pursuit of of studying because he loves studying it's it's a pursuit yeah. of studying because he has this like this weird hufflepuff motivation in his mind and he he never got over a girl he had sex with once for 30 years so you know, that's actually yeah. that's super hufflepuff that that that, that yeah. fucking pounds the gavel he's a hufflepuff. yeah hufflepuff baby um is there anyone else uncle victor i think uncle victor is uh Gryffindor? Gryffindor? Okay. He's I think not he's, enough of an... I think he's a Chad. Yeah, I thought he was more of like a... Like... In a brave way, pursuing what he wanted to do. Yes. As opposed to, like, most of the other characters in this book. Yeah. Okay. That's What about Mrs. Hume? Mrs. Hume. Hufflepuff. 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 Yep. This is a Hufflepuff ass book. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 Hufflepuff heavy. What about Zimmer? <laughs> I don't know if we know enough about Zimmer, honestly. He seems I, Ravenclaw, I but whatever. Ravenclaw. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that's it. it. I think that's yeah. pretty much it. Um so there it is. We just read another book. And uh let's give it should we give it some 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 ratings, some scores? All right, boys. Anyone got one right out the chamber? I'm at a I'm at a 
Oh my god. That's why I was gonna go three even. I give it a four point four. righty. Widely divergent. I like that. My, That's my favorite kind my, of thing though. My I'm not I'm not happy about this because all of all of your lowest ratings have been my books. It sucks. I think it's evened out by how much you hated Humesville. <laughs> yeah, that was your entire time of discussion. That was the first time I've ever wrote an essay to just open the discussion <laughs> on how much you hated it. That book sucks so bad. I'll take that in stride. Listen, I'll take that in stride. I'll argue it down, but no, it's it's you know, it ain't personal, baby. Um All right, fine. any final thoughts before we say goodbye to the people? Uh no. Uh you know, it's crazy world out there. <laughs> There's a lot going on. It's uh, things are happening. You, if you get the constant, remember, if you things events are occurring in time. Right. Uh, if you get the Constitution, you are the leader of the the country for as long as you can hold it. It's like capture the flag right now, out there. Yes. Uh, so just have at it, I guess. Go grab it and yell something say yell orders to the world that's right yeah manifest it purge world right purge that's world another day. theme to manifest destiny okay bye all right bye bye all right paul